First Palm Media. You are listening to Mushing on First Paw Media. Visit our website at mushing.com. Hello and welcome, everybody. This is Robert, and today I am joined by a veterinarian calling in from the Salt Lake City, Utah area. Her name is Kim Henneman. Kim, how's it going today? Great, Robert. Thanks for inviting me on the show. And I'm actually from the Park City area. We're in the mountains, so... Oh, okay. Very good. So yeah, in no Park, worries, no worries. Park City, Utah, beautiful area. Mm-hmm. I was just there last summer. I can't wait to get back one of these winters and see what uh, the greatest snow on earth actually is. I, uh, we have a whole lot of right. it here in Alaska. What is the weather like in your neck of the woods? We have, unfortunately, after a record-setting year last year, uh, we are unfortunately pretty dry right now. I don't know where all the snow from you guys is going, but it's not coming here. So we've got a lot of bare ground, and the ski resorts aren't fully open yet either. So we're praying for snow. Yes, we have about eight feet already, and it's just now the holidays. So it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. Kim, I'm really excited to have you on today. We're going to talk a lot about vet care on the trail. It's a very interesting topic. I think this is the first time we've had a veterinarian on, and you have quite a bit of experience with stage stop and Iditarod. You're heading over to Europe and all of that. But before we jump into all that, can you please give us a quick bio? Tell us who you are and what you're all about, please. Sure. So I have uh, my own private practice. Uh, I've been focusing on sports medicine and rehabilitation as we have to call it rehab because the physical therapists own the name PT. So uh, we call it rehab. And uh, I've been focusing on, you know, kind of a little bit of mix of uh, general practice as well as sports medicine. And then I do integrative therapies as well. So I'm double board certified in sports medicine and rehab. It's a new specialty college for the veterinarians. And right now, no one else has been silly enough to try to get boarded in both canine and equine sports medicine, but I did. And so far, I'm the only one uh, because I came into the dog uh, athlete world coming from the horse world. And uh, so now my practice is a little bit kind of half sports medicine rehab, both dogs and horses, various types of performance dogs, including, as you know, sled dogs. And then the other half of it is more integrative and conventional medicine for uh, long-term health and getting puppies started right and older dogs and cats, getting them taken care of when they develop chronic disease issues. And so that's what I, and I'm licensed in 10 States and travel around a lot, including in Alaska and from everywhere from new England to Nevada and then from Alaska to Hawaii. Wow. So Kim, where did you go to go to school to get your degree? Well, I got my undergrad at Utah State. I'm a Western kid, and I grew up in the mountains, in the Rocky Mountains here, skiing and hiking, and uh, didn't have any sled dogs then, but uh, did a lot of outdoor stuff. And then I went to Purdue uh, for my vet school, which was very challenging because it was very flat, and there wasn't a lot of skiing, and there wasn't a lot of uh, snow sports there. And then uh, as soon as I was done with my veterinary degree, which I hate to confess, was back in 1986. Then I came home and uh, started working at home and then took additional training throughout the years from here. So you said that you got involved in sort of the sports world, if you will, through horses. What were you doing in the horse world? Was it shows and and that sort of stuff or, or what? Yeah, I was uh, accompanying uh, endurance horses to the World Equestrian Games, and uh, I went with the U.S. equestrian team 
to uh, several international competitions, including to Dubai. And then locally, I was, did a lot. I have a lot of rodeo horses that I work on, uh, eventing, dressage, show jumping, um, and then basic, you know, ranch horses because they're athletes too. Working animals are athletes as well. We just don't think of them that because they don't come home with a ribbon. And then I was competing myself both in uh, sheep herding as well as three-day eventing. And uh, I was during the years that agility was just starting with dogs and I started getting some dog people that would say, hey, while I'm in here, can you look at this? And because I would say, well, in a horse, I'd be concerned about this problem. Let's see if we have it in this dog. And then I played around with thermal imaging, played around with ultrasound and started developing, unknowing that there were other veterinarians doing the same thing, started to develop working on performance dogs and working dogs. So herding, avalanche, search and rescue, uh, police dogs, um, and then competitive dogs like agility. Um, Obviously, uh, right now it's uh, sledding as well, mushing as well. And uh, just pretty much protection sports. Now it's a little bit of everything. But it started with a single agility dog and then one herding dog that someone said, could you look at this, please? Wow, you have a tremendous amount of support in, in a bunch of different disciplines and you know people that are listening to our show not only compete in mushing but often they do compete in other sports like agility or herding or barn hunt and all of that so correct uh, we could probably talk forever just about performance dogs in general but when did you get involved with uh, the the sled dog sports if you will whether it be uh snow sports or canicross or anything like that well, I had a few clients that were doing a little bit of skijoring. Um, it was definitely making it, doing it on the fly. And there were some several face plants in snow with those dogs. Um, but I had, uh, there was a gal up in uh, north of here in Logan in Cache County that started running a small local race for about eight dog teams. And then the kids had a two dog team. And she was looking, she put a call out through the veterinary association for veterinarians to come work the race. And uh, it went out to all these vets and I was like, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I've never worked with a sled dog before. I'm going to let's go do that. And so I started working at her race and loved it, loved the people, loved the dogs. It was just such a nice community. And uh, then everybody was saying, oh, you should go work bigger races. You should go to Alaska. You should work Iditarod. So my associate and I kind of looked at doing it and then we applied. Uh, in two, we actually applied for 2010, but I had torn my ACL and had surgery, and so I wasn't able to work the race. But I did go up and do the, the rookie vet training course, and then I went out on the trail for the first time in 2011. It was only going to be a bucket list, a single bucket list item, but it's addictive. And uh, even when you're not standing on the runners, it's still addictive. And uh, so I ended up working the race 11 years. Wow. So we're going to jump right into the fire with my first question in regard to racing dogs, sled dogs in particular. I think a lot of people, uh, when they are listening to our show, they try to equate what their dog does, typically their pet dog, since that's the majority of our listeners, and try to figure out the differences between, you know, the, the golden retriever that's laying at your feet watching the game on Monday night compared to an extreme canine athlete that runs Iditarod or Stage Stop or anything like that. As a veterinarian, can you compare and contrast a little bit between that pet dog and a high-performance athlete? Sure. So just like in the horse world and in the human world, 
Uh, we have a lot of different sports that uh, are determined, the effort is determined by the amount of time that the muscles have to stay active and that the individual is exercising. So we have, and as we know in the mushroom world, we have things broken down into sprint, mid-distance, and uh, de- marathon and distance dogs. So we kind of look at the dog world kind of the same way. Uh, we know that, you know, certain runners, like, you know, the the guys that come from Kenya that can kind of run the Boston Marathon and they're never winded at the end versus someone like me trying to do that, where I can make it maybe a kilometer and then, you know, that would be it. So we know there's some genetic differences between the horses, the humans, the dogs that are running these different distances. And then there are different needs for each of those uh, efforts, so to speak. So the Greyhound, the racing Greyhound is going to have different needs than, you know, an Iditarod or a distance dog. And that's going to be a different need than a hunting dog that's going to be out there running off and on all day because that's still that's still a form of a marathon dog, but it's different than the than the sled dog. So you know, initially we didn't have a lot of research to help us out. We had some research happening in the mushing world. And then the only other type of athletic dog that we had research on was being done on the greyhounds. So we had like the two extremes that we were getting research on. But thank goodness, because there's been such a growing interest in people going out and doing things with their dogs, whether it's nose work, barn hunt, herding, uh, ski joring, low distance, you know, uh, small distance mushing, um, tracking, uh, protection work. That because of all of this interest, and also because of September 11th, we had all of a sudden this explosion in the value of detection dogs and nose work in dogs. That now the medicine is finally catching up with the needs of all of those other different disciplines, and now we're starting to get quite a bit of research. There's a there's a, there's a financial drive for it now and interest on the part of the veterinary world as well to try to get those questions answered and to give those dogs the best possible care. And I think a lot of people, just one more question, Kim, in regard to the comparing and contrasting uh, between pet dogs and working dogs. I think a lot of people don't quite understand the, the differences, if you will, in, say, nutrition and exercise and vet care and all the things that go into a pretty hardcore working dog that may be quite a bit different than the poodle or the Labrador that's just the pet in the home. Is that right? Yes and no. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes even veterinarians don't understand the difference. Uh, our college is still kind of struggling a little bit to make sure that people understand that not every hind leg lameness is a cruciate ligament, not every front leg lameness is a shoulder. Any of the, especially like with hunting dogs, for example, like with goldens, right? You brought up the golden retriever, that you can have a pet golden retriever that if it comes from working lines, even though that dog is sitting around acting as a pet, with the appropriate nutrition, conditioning, training, there's nothing that keeps that dog from potentially, you know, turning into a quote unquote working dog or turning into a canine athlete. I mean, I live in Park City. I live up in the mountains. We have a lot of people that like to hike and do activities with their dogs. And I can tell you that a lot of the pets that can be from all different types of breeds and breed mixes, 
that I see that those dogs are going out there and they're fairly athletic now just because of the fact they're getting out and they're exercising so they can get athletic injuries. And then, of course, um, a lot of those clients need to be guided on, okay, so if you're going to be doing this with your dog, here's how you need to feed your dog. So there's a lot of crossover that can happen between, you know, that dog that's lying at your feet. That dog still has the potential to turn into a canine athlete versus the sled dog that's specifically bred in a kennel to to race. So there's a st- there's still a lot we can that one can go to one way and one can go the other way in terms of learning from each other. So let's jump right into sled dog racing or mushing. And of course, there's a bunch of disciplines, like you mentioned, whether it be sprint or long distance or mid distance and all of that. And each one of those race disciplines requires a little bit different logistics, if you will, from everybody that's involved, including the the veterinarians. For example, on Iditarod or Quest or something like that, you guys are traveling from checkpoint to checkpoint and you're outside and in the cold and in the dark and all of that, whereas a... At a sprint race, you're pretty much at the at the starting line or the you know the finish line to check out the dogs. Let's talk Correct. about those two different types of vet care. Uh, obviously, it's much different in you know in the middle of the night uh, on the Iditarod Trail compared to the local race uh, five minutes from the local emergency vet, where some if something crucial happened, you could get them up and get them out of there. What are the big differences between those two? You mean like, uh, well, I mean, obviously, like you just said, um, accessibility to critical care management is a big issue. So when we're out on the trail, we don't have access to some of the things that an emergency clinic would have, like oxygen. Sometimes, I mean, if you're in a village and there's a there's a clinic, sometimes we've had access to something like that versus being like, say, if I'm standing at the start or the finish line in Jackson Hole or one of the other towns that like the stage stop goes through, or, you know, working in Cache County when we were close to Logan. So accessibility is a very big issue, but at its at the core foundation of medicine, the sprint dog is still going to have similar type musculoskeletal injuries um, that a distance dog is going to have. Uh, distance dogs will have, they have other issues that may be related to the fact that they're running several days in a row and they have to sleep outside versus like in a stage stop where they come back and they get to sleep in their kennels. So you'll have some small differences like that. Foundational problems are still going to be the same. The difference may be how many dogs you see having those issues. Like they may skew for shoulder problems in one type of a race because of either distance or the trail conditions versus they may skew to a different kind of problem, musculoskeletal problem. Or like we know with um, the distance dogs, we have to worry about, you know, gastric ulcers. We have to worry about tying up myopathies. Uh, We have to worry about pneumonia that you're more likely to see in a distance dog. And that's mostly not because of a difference. There's some genetic difference in the dogs, but it's mostly because of the days that they spend out there environmentally versus, you know, for a distance dog versus like a merit versus like a mid distance or a sprint dog. So those are the main differences. Foundationally, they're still dogs. They're still either, they're still a Northern breeds. So they're still either Alaskan Huskies or they're Siberians. And they're still going to have similar type health issues, no matter whether they're running 60 to a hundred to a thousand miles. All right, guys, we're going to take a very short break here, and we will be right back. 
Nobody covers dog sledding like mushing from First Paw Media. Our team of athletes, volunteers, race organizers, and mushers like Robert and Michelle Forto brings you closer to the sport. If it's happening, we are there. Live from the qualifying races in January and February, the Iditarod in March, and in the summer, mushing takes you on the road with our team and trail tour. We connect you with a history of the sport, in-depth interviews with the top mushers, and great storytelling and breaking news all year long. Follow on mushing.com. Okay, Kim, we were talking about sort of the lead up to heading out onto the trail in some of these big time, well-known races like the stage stop here in the U S as well as the Iditarod here in Alaska. And I know that you're heading over to Europe to work for uh, one of the races out there. And I think that's the first time in your career that you've done that. Is that right? That is correct. I have not worked over in uh, Scandinavia before. So, Obviously, it's a little bit different uh, working at a local race, and, and we're saying local, meaning Utah and Stage Stop, compared to Iditarod or even something in Europe. How do you plan for that? Uh, when is the race that, that you're going to take place, and what, is it, what are you going to do different for that than you've done on other races that you've been to? Well, uh, I still don't have all of the information from the race organizers yet, the head veterinarian, on what I need to plan on in terms of, you know, clothing. And uh, it's my understanding that the Finmark actually gives the veterinary team jackets, so I don't have to bring my own, but I probably will anyway. Um, so that's, uh, you know, it's getting there, obviously, is going to be um, an interesting uh, I mean, but it's travel. It's no big deal. Um, so it, it, I have to wait and see what the the protocols are, what the recommendations are from the head vet. I've already spoken to friends of mine that have worked the Finmark, and um, I've got an idea of what we have to do. It's my understanding that a lot of those races, they're not as isolated. And a lot of times uh, ve vehicles can make it into those checkpoints and that animals can be pulled out that way if there's a problem. So I think, you know, the basic foundational thing, it's just maybe some small, slight differences in protocols. Um, but when an animal is sick, it's pretty universal. It's not going to be different whether I say talk to the dog or thank you to the dog. Um, it's still going to be a dog that is going to have the same kind of biological responses, whether it's in Norway or Switzerland or Alaska or in uh, Wyoming. I'm sure it's going to be one heck of an opportunity. And that's how we connected. I saw that you posted over on our mushing page about heading over there and I want to congratulate you for being able to have that opportunity. I'm sure that's a pretty big deal and a feather in your cap, if you will, uh, for uh, for the uh, yeah, for I'm the really sled, excited. Yeah, for the sled dog veterinary world for sure. So, Kim, I'm pretty familiar with how vet care takes place in races like the Iditarod or mid distance races here in Alaska. And like you said, often they are much more remote than other races like the Stage Stop or other mid distance races that are a little bit more um, accessible. So on your travels on Iditarod, can you explain that a little bit? Uh, do you go to one checkpoint, say McGrath, and stay there uh, the entire time where people are, are coming and going? Or do you hop, hopscotch down the trail? What's it like for the day in the life of an Iditarod veterinarian? 
Well, we um, kind of hopscotch down the trail. So um, there's usually anywhere, depending on how many veterinarians the race has any particular year, they're usually anywhere from five to seven veterinarians at a checkpoint. Uh, obviously, the early checkpoints, there are more veterinarians because the, the, the field hasn't started to spread out and space out yet. And then as a checkpoint starts to close, um, then they will maybe keep one or two veterinarians there and then they'll pick everybody else up and move you somewhere else. Uh, one of the things that's so fun about it is that you never know where you're going to go. And I've even had, uh, I had one situation where I was being told I was going to go to Iditarod. I was sitting in Unilacleet uh, waiting to catch my flight to Iditarod. And then at the last minute, they threw me on an airplane to Anvik. So, uh, you know, it's like, okay, sure, whatever, right? It's about being flexible. And you have to be flexible working on the dogs as well, too, because if you're used to working in an emergency clinic with staff to do everything for you, and which I never was. I, had, I, I was a vet tech before I was a veterinarian, so I kind of know how to do stuff as well. But a lot of veterinarians, it's a shock for them sometimes when they get out on the trail because now you have to do everything, you have to wrap things, you have to write your own notes, handwriting, and you know how that handwriting can be. Um, so, uh, you know, and you have to be flexible because, you know, we have our boxes that have a lot of supplies in them, but sometimes you may, in a, in a fancy clinic, you might have one type of supply that you can use, and then in our boxes, that's not reasonable, either due to weight or size or cost. And so we have to go with something else. Um, I showed a young veterinarian when I was in Anvik, actually, it was her first year, how to, we had a dog that we suspected had strained a collateral ligament in its hock in the tarsus on the back leg, like the ankle in the back leg. And so I showed her how to make splints using tongue depressors and white tape. And uh, she had never seen that technique before. And so, um, you know, it, it teaches you how to be flexible and how to fix things with what you have. And when you are in these more remote checkpoints like Anvik or Iditarod or McGrath or some of these places that are literally in the middle of nowhere, what does a shift look like or a day look like? Is it just pretty much a, a constant? You know, obviously that depends on where races are coming and going. But do you work in a shift like a 12 hour shift or something and then a colleague will replace you or how does that work? Well, it kind of depends on how many veterinarians we have at a checkpoint, but what we'll try to do is because we, you know, you're not going to work very well and you're not going to be very smart if you're exhausted. So what we try to do is we try to do shifts. Uh, there are multiple different systems I have worked on uh, where we put shifts together, but we'll kind of talk to each other. We try to usually work in pairs because it's easier to get through a team efficiently so the dogs can get fed and rested as quickly as possible when they come in. So we'll try to kind of work in pairs and, uh, you know, have one team on for maybe eight or one vet team on for eight hours. And then the other team comes on, you know, at the end of that. And so people can take breaks. I've had shifts as long as eight hours. I've had shifts as long as four hours. And then the early checkpoints like Yetna and Squentna, um, you're just pretty much on for 12 hours just because most of the dogs, most of the teams are coming through within that 12-hour period. So not Iditarod specific, but all the races that you've worked at, are these typically paid or volunteer positions? They are almost always volunteer um, Iditarod is considered a volunteer, but we do get a small stipend that barely covers, and that's only after year one 
uh, that barely does, it doesn't even cover your airfare. From down here in the lower 48, it doesn't cover airfare. But that's not why we're doing it, right? We're doing it because we love going up there, meeting the people, and, and hugging on those dogs. Yeah, for sure. So what is the time commitment for a race like Iditarod? Obviously, we know it starts on the first Saturday of March and typically ends about 10 or 11 days after that. So from the time that you say, yep, I'm getting on the plane right now until the time you get home, how many days is that typically? Well, it can vary. When you're a rookie veterinarian, you have to take the rookie trail vet class first, which is three days. Uh, and it's like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday before the start of the race. So uh, you have to account for that. And so most veterinarians work maybe a week on the trail because they've got three or four days that they're doing their training. Um, when we become more of a veteran type veterinarian, um, then it just depends on, then it's a little more flexible depending on how many vets in needs. But usually they prefer that you can come up for a minimum of 10 days and two weeks is even better. I've committed two weeks to the Finmark um, just because I'm there for the whole race. So let's jump over to a couple of quick stories. And I think this is what our listeners will really enjoy. So my first question, since a lot of people are very familiar with Iditarod, do you have a favorite checkpoint and or do you have a interesting story about one of those checkpoints? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, there's so many. Um, and I like to photograph a lot while I'm at the checkpoints as well, too. I'd have to say that probably my favorite checkpoint was Anvik. Um, I mean, all of the villages, I mean, I love New Lotto. I, I mean, I loved um, Ofer. Um, you know, the, the thing is, is you, you bring into the checkpoint what you're going to get back, right? And so I try to come in without attitude. I come in because I like people. I want to get to know them. I'm there to help. It's not about me. It's about them. It's about their dogs. And, uh, and I'm there just to experience what it's all about. So, you know, I mean, I've had a great time in Koyak. I, mean, I just, I kind of love them all. But Anvik stands out a little bit because I got asked, it was the first to the Yukon. And so that's where the sponsoring hotel, the lakefront provides their five course, four course dinner to the musher. And uh, Nick Petit came in the year that I was there early. And um, he, they said, oh, who are you going to ask is your date, Nick? And I was, had been there when he came in to help him with his dogs. And he turns to me and he said, would you like to be my date? And I turned and looked behind me because I didn't know he was talking to me. I was so shocked that he would ask. But he was he was thanking me for something I had done to help him with his dogs the year before to show him a technique for stretching the dogs and for checking for um, some musculoskeletal issues. And it was so kind. And I and I said, yes, I will definitely be your date. It was like 8 o'clock in the morning. And I said, I will definitely be your date, but it's going to be the team. And because uh, we all work as a team, I was the senior veterinarian for that checkpoint, but I, everybody got food, everybody got some of the Dom Perignon, and we just had a great time. It's really a weird feeling to be sitting down there um, with a full setting of plate and silverware with the press sitting in front of you. Um, but uh, Nick was great, and uh, we had a good time, and we had a lot of nice food, and uh, it was just something, one of those little special little special things that happened. Kim, I think we have time for one more story. And that is, what is the most interesting case that you've had out on the trail? And I asked that because 
you guys are typically the first responders, not only for dogs, but for people. And I've heard over the years of doing that, that the veterinarians have, you know, stitched up uh, arms and legs of people and pulled broken teeth and all sorts of stuff uh, on the people side, not just the, the dog side. Do you have an interesting story about a musher or a dog out on the trail? Um, about dogs, yes. I haven't had to fortunately have to treat anybody on the trail, although I was on the trail in 2014 when it was a mess going down the Dalzell Gorge. And I was fortunately at Rainy Pass that year. Rainy Pass is a good checkpoint, too. I have to put some kudos in um, to that checkpoint as well. Um, and uh, uh, my associate was working in, I think she was working either in Roan or Nikolai. I think she was in Roan. And she ended up having to treat a lot of people that year because so many people had gotten hurt coming down the gorge. But um, I'd have to say that one dog that really kind of holds a special place in my heart was a dog that uh, was on a team towards the end of the end of the race, back the pack. And uh, he was um, a borrowed dog and belonged to another musher. And he kind of got discombobulated with the rest of the team, went around a tree on the other side from where the rest of the team was going through, got flipped in the harness and he broke his leg, had a very nice, clean fracture, the radius and the ulna. And um, so the musher had to, she put him in the bag and brought him back and essentially called her race for that, that trip. She did the right thing. And so we had him uh, at Rainy Pass and then he flew out. So we took care of him. He was in the bag. We took care of him, got him splinted, gave him some fluids. And I have a really nice picture of uh, the musher sleeping with the dog um, in the bottom of the lodge there um, because she was concerned about him. And uh, the dog ended up going on and um, having surgery and I reached out afterwards because uh, I knew the musher that owned the dog as well too and I reached out to her afterwards to check to see how the dog was doing and he had moved she had moved to a different town and the dog got had to be flown from and the specialty practice in Anchorage to that and then um, she was in a pretty remote area and I thought he could really benefit from some rehab exercises. So we did some rehab recommendations through um, the phone and through Facebook. And, uh, and I really, I really liked that dog a lot. And I stayed in touch with her for several years to see that was in, I think 2014. And so I stayed in touch with her and he just passed away this past year at 15 or 16. So she sent me a picture of him every year for when she'd have him on the trails hiking. And uh, so, I mean, that's not like a real super big, it's not like a big trauma or anything like that. But, you know, he was one of those little dogs that touched my heart and I stayed in touch with him. And, and like you said, that's the reason you do this. I mean, you said it's a volunteer position, Absolutely. but it's, it's those stories. It's those, um, relationships that you form with the uh, with the competitors, whether they be human or canine. Kim, I, I want to jump in with one final question. It sort of goes on the lines of sure. what you were just talking about for that after race care. And it's my understanding on most races, at least races that I've been a part of, that this is actually a two-part question. The first part of that question is, is it a fact that veterinary care is sort of continued up to and after the race, meaning you are responsible, if you will, in terms of vet care 
after the dog comes into the finish at Nome, it just doesn't say, oh, you're done. It's over. You guys still have a commitment. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, yes and no. It's the same as any veterinarian would have if you are present when there is an animal and if that animal has a problem, has a health problem. Uh, after the dogs are within the care of the musher and the musher's handlers, technically the care goes to them. They're responsible for the care. But as long as the dogs are in the dog lot, like if you're specifically talking about Gnome, as long as the dogs are in the dog lot, we're still there and we're available and we're walking around. And, you know, if anybody develops pneumonia, if anybody starts having any problems, we're there to care for those dogs. And we've got fluids and we've got the stuff that we need because Gnome doesn't have a full-time veterinarian. So it would be no different than being anywhere on the trail. I mean, that's why I got licensed in Alaska because I wanted to be able to legally take care of village dogs if I'm up there and someone comes in with a question on a dog or has a problem with a village dog because technically we're not supposed to. We're only licensed to take care of the racing dogs. But, you know, they have, there's such a shortage of veterinarians everywhere, not even just in the lower 48, but especially I've noticed Alaska's got quite a shortage as well. And so I'm there to be a veterinarian. I'm there to help animals. And so I, I that's why I got licensed. And that's what we all do is we're there to help take care of animals. Uh, technically, we're not like when the dogs come back to um, Anchorage and they go, they get triaged and they go to various vet clinics or they go up to the prison in Eagle River. Um, you know, technically, once they get picked up by the musher's handler, they are no longer responsible. You know, the Iditarod and Iditarod veterinarians are no longer responsible for the dog care. That's now the musher's. But, you know, in Nome, we're the vets. We're there. The dogs are there. You know, that's we're there to take care of them. That's right. what we do. Right. So, Cam, one last question here in regard to that. A lot of people expect or think that you guys have sort of the superseding authority over uh, what's happening with the dogs on the trail, meaning if a dog comes in and does not look good or is injured and, you know, the musher says, oh, he's fine, uh, he'll be able to go. It, it's similar with, with human injuries as well. Oh, I'm fine. I can go back out on the field. I don't know if I have a concussion or not. I'm okay. Uh, do you guys have that sort of superseding authority on these races? Are you guys sort of the, uh, the, the final call or is it something else on most races? No, it's not like in endurance racing, like with horses, with endurance racing, the veterinarian has the final call on, but usually it's done as a committee, right? If we're pulling an animal that has a problem. Uh, no, we do not have the final call. What we're supposed to do is evaluate the dog and uh, if we have concerns, we express those concerns to the, um, you know, to the judge and to other people associated with the race that are a little higher up than we are. And uh, usually if a dog, I have, I have never been, except for once or twice, I've never been in a situation where if I brought a concern to a musher that the musher did not take it seriously and have a discussion about whether or not the dog could go and continue on. Um, and if there is a problem, then, you know, it's usually because people are tired, they're cold, you know, they've just come in from their meditative state on the runners and now they're back into, you know, a little bit of 
society, so to speak. And it's all about communication. It's all about talking. It's discussion. And uh, then, you know, then it usually, if there's a problem, we're supposed to take it to the judge. And then the judge makes sure there's, the judge is the superseding authority at a checkpoint, not the veterinarian. And even in terms of the dog health. Excellent information. Kim, is there anything else that you want to mention or is just something that we have to make sure is in this episode? I I guess the thing that I'd really love to see you guys talk about is there's been a lot of uh, really cool new information coming out on uh, feeding distant sled dogs and how maybe they may be needing a little bit more carbohydrates and glucose than we used to think. And uh, um, and electrolytes. And I just encourage everybody to learn as much as they can about their dogs. Uh, the amount that you give of certain things may differ between a sprint dog and between a marathon dog, but giving them that energy and giving them the nutrients that they need to run doesn't, doesn't differ between the sprint and the marathon dogs. So, uh, and just everybody give your dogs a hug because you guys have amazing, amazing dogs. Very good. Kim, how can folks follow you uh, on social media? Are you active on Facebook or Instagram or where? Yeah, I am active on Facebook. Uh, it's just me. I don't have staff to do that right now. Uh, the, my clinic name is Animal Health VIPs, which stands for uh, Veterinary Integrative and Performance Specialist. And uh, so uh, they can reach me that way. Our office email is office at AOL.com. And yep, I'm still on AOL and people can reach us that way. Um, and now that things are kind of settling down again from the pandemic, I, uh, before the pandemic, I was with the help of some, uh, several mushers who were helping to organize it. I was doing some workshops on, uh, the care and feeding of racing and retired sled dogs. And if there's interest, we're hoping to try to get something organized and, and start getting those up and going again to get information. And I strongly encourage, uh, all you mushers, the international sled dog veterinary medical association has just come out with a new edition of the veterinary and musher handbook. If somebody's new to mushing, I highly, highly recommend that you order that book through the isdvma.org. We have a lot of very practical information that is pertinent to both rookie veterinarians, veterinarians new to getting into performance dogs in general, and especially to mushers and dog handlers. And guys that are listening, we will make sure to put all of those links down in the show notes. So you can click and uh, go to those sites and, and purchase that book or follow uh, our guest today on socials and uh, keep the discussion going for sure. Kim, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure and we hope to talk again soon. Thank you so much, Robert. And I'll, when I get to Norway, I'll keep you guys informed as to how that experience is. Very good. On behalf of my guest today, this is Robert for Mushing. We will see you guys next time. Goodbye. Do you eat enough fruits and vegetables? Green Infusion by Wilderness Athlete can help. So what is Green Infusion? It's a blend of super greens, super fruits, vegetable extracts, herbs, and probiotics and delivers a broad spectrum of nutrients that provides a gentle alkalinizing and cleansing effect to the body while reinforcing proper digestive function and restoring healthful intestinal microflora. Just one scoop a day of green infusion is six servings of fruits and vegetables. Learn more at wildernessathlete.com and use DogWorks for 10% off your order today. That is wildernessathlete.com and use DogWorks at checkout.